and the kids are whizzing. When we're heading into a prelude to war. When you mix one part flump, two parts owlbear, shake and pour over ice. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Ostron. And this is the 231st entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, December 10th, 2022, and released Wednesday, December 14th, 2022, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventurers Pack, Ryu and I went to PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia last week and spoke to some people called Wiz Kids. I don't know, they're probably not a big deal. Next, we check out some D&D news as we take a look at the latest hardcover release, Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen. After that, we take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to look at all things Thessal and how to make them, before finally heading into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's packs. You always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need this stupid roll for. Uh, so this is Ostron, we're at PAX Unplugged 2022. We are doing the uh, demo from the WizKids booth on upcoming uh, products, is that right? Uh, it's whatever you want it to be. You know, we uh, signed up for our, our press VIP program, so we're happy to have you here and um, take you on a little tour around the booth. We have a goodie bag for you, but uh, mostly just a chance to say hi and show you what's new, okay. what's coming. Yeah, so uh, why don't we get to it then? Uh, the upcoming products and what's coming out? Yeah, so let's. I have a couple of display cases here. Let, let's walk over to this glass display case where I have some new things. Okay, so you've, you've probably heard of a little thing called Dragon Lance, which of course is the the new D and D adventure setting, the new D and D book. Uh, people are very excited that it uh, that it's that's here. We have our miniature set. This is on display for the very first time. It's rolling out March, um, so uh, a little bit a little bit uh, a little bit off. But this is the first time that the pre-painted miniature set is going to be uh, is being shown. So we we airship these in from the factory so we could show them for the first time here at PAX. So what you see here on this top shelf is not everything we have for Dragonlance, but it, it's it's most of the booster set. Actually, all, all of the booster set and then a couple of the standalone premium box sets. So in the me- in the back middle there, that's Lord Soth, the, the big bad of Dragonlance on the Greater Death Dragon. Now, he's in the case, so you, you can't totally tell, but that's a convertible miniature. So he can come off. He, it comes with a pair of legs. He can stand up. As, as a, he can stand up as an individual miniature. There's a little notch that goes in the back of the dragon, the back of the dragon's neck, so you can play them separately or together. Same deal with uh, Consalvi on the red dragon in the back left corner there. So that's also a standalone uh, box set. Everything else you see here on this shelf is in the booster brick, in the blind boxes, including these larger figures. So because of the awesome large creatures in Dragonlance, we wanted to make sure to find a way to make as many of those miniatures as we could and put them in the boosters. So um, there, there's the regular sort of booster that people are familiar with, and then there's also a super booster. Um, that's a double wide, double deep, retails for 50 bucks, and you get, you're, you're guaranteed to get two gargantuan rare creatures uh, in each. So that, that includes 
well, you could probably guess which ones that includes. Uh, uh, and that that uh, young black dragon with the rider, he, he also comes off. What's the uh, sort of mechanical dragon type miniature there? Here, you know what? I can actually open the case and I'll show you. Oh. He just pulled out the large death dragon with Lord Soth riding off it. Probably because Ryu couldn't take her eyes off it the whole time. I was wondering if he noticed. <laughs> this is the, the boiler track. Okay. So it's a mechanical construction. Just for our listeners, we're looking at a sort of combination. It's almost a steampunk dragon. It's all metal with ladders and wheels and definitely shaped like a dragon. Nice. And if you tuned in for the uh, D&D Live Dragonlance event last night, they had these on the table, which is awesome. So then here is Lord Soth on the Greater Death Dragon, which is just an amazing miniature. What does that measure, like wingspan? Do you know? Top of my head, uh, I think 14 inches, wingtip to wingtip. I think that is one of the most stunning WizKids minis I've seen. I wish I could take credit for it. I'm just the marketing guy, but the, the, the quality is just getting better and better. Uh, it, it's really awesome. Very nice. So pop these back in the case and then we can keep talking. Yep. Okay. So on the second shelf here is Dungeons & Dragons Onslaught, which is coming in January. This is a, an all-new tactical skirmish miniatures game set in the Forgotten Realms of D&D. So this that you see here is the core set, which is coming in January. It retails for $140. And it is a, a big box miniatures game experience, including 21 all new pre-painted D&D miniatures, including some larger scale miniatures. There's a troll, an Etten, a young black dragon, actually. So we fit it in the box by making the, the wings come off and go back on. So you actually get a dragon in that box. Um, you also, so 21 miniatures total, including uh, six player character miniatures for, for the two player factions. So the conceit of Onslaught is it's a D&D adjacent combat system that weights things towards like fast, frantic, urgent, tactical, skirmish, battling with a player versus player versus environment dynamic. So there will be monsters on the board that are strong enough to wipe out a character, wipe out a party even. So uh, depending on the scenario, you'll set things up differently. There are also, um, there, so it comes with a, um, a scenario book that includes seven linked scenarios so you get to experience both, both boards, um, all the characters, all the monsters, and then they're also replayable, you know, deathmatch, capture the flag, control point modes as well. For Onslaught, it, it, it's really, it's more than a, a game. We have, we have a whole world of Onslaught stuff coming, so we have new factions that'll be introduced to the game. Those are the faction packs in the corner there. Again, you'll, you'll get all pre-painted miniatures, six, six new miniatures for, for new teams that'll be playable with the game. Um, faction, you know, uh, custom faction d20s and, um, and and character cards so uh, if you look on the table you see the whole setup this is the Pax Unplugged 2022 is the first time that we are demoing uh, for people with the, with the full core set and it has this really really slick character card system which with their, their dual layer cardboard with uh, wheels dials in between that track your, your, your stats as you get beat up your your health and your AC might change um, depending on your, your, your class depending on your character um, and then also your cooldown abilities. So you'll be casting fireball and um, burning hands you know, if you're a sorcerer, etc. So there's, there's really fun team building. Um, we're gonna have retail exclusive uh, content for people who go out and play in the community. So we're putting a lot behind this. We're, we're really excited to, to get it out and have you know the, both 
uh, new content coming for the game as well as some really fun events that people can go out and engage with. Now the other really cool thing about Onslaught is that it's designed from the ground up to be compatible with miniatures from our other lines of D&D miniatures. So we'll have compatibility lists that are shared online on our Onslaught website that give you, so you might get, in, in the core set, for instance, there's a, a character, Crabble Shanks, the ranger. He's a little goblin miniature, and so you get the you get the pre-painted miniature. You also get the character card that controls him, but there's no specific art. It's a silhouette on the character card, and we'll be sharing a list of a proxy list of compatible miniatures from our other lines. So if you have something that you already have, a, a ranger mini, it might be compatible, even tournament legal with onslaught. You might also want to just paint your whole team, and you'll have a bunch of options to be able to do that. We, of course, we're not, we have so many miniatures that we've done, we didn't want to unlock absolutely everything. We wanted to think about, okay, what can people get, what, what people might have, and then also trying to think about keeping things like visually cohesive on the table. So, uh, yeah. If I may, you mentioned tournament legal is, uh, is Wids Kids going to be organizing like official sponsored yes. tournaments and yes. competitions yeah. for this? Yes, exactly, we will. Um, so, we, uh, we haven't announced yet, but we have some really fun uh, convention stuff going on in March. You might be able to guess some of the conventions that that might be happening at. Um, so, more to come soon. But yeah, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have tournaments going on, we'll have other unique events and game modes. And of course, um, hobby stores, game stores will, will have access to a lot of really cool stuff. So, if you look in the case there, there's a unique Mimic miniature with the tongue hanging out there. Yep. Just, just behind that, yeah. So, so that is, in the game, of course, you'll be looting chests and picking up equipment. It's D&D, you can't trust every chest blindly. So you might find a Mimic. The game comes with a, a cardboard token, but as a, as a prize uh, that we're gonna be offering out, out to stores to you know, prize uh, events, you can get this awesome, unique Mimic miniature. miniature. Nice. Uh, so that, that's like, that's just, just the very first. We have a lot of cool stuff planned along those lines. That was the second shelf here. If we go up to the top, we have, you probably heard that there's a little, little thing called uh, Honor Among Thieves coming, the D&D movie. Um, We've heard so, a thing or two. Yeah, yeah, they're talking about it. So we have some unique product for the movie. So we don't have the miniatures here, but in the center there's that sign, that little stand-up sign. We have a, a, a box set of pre-painted miniatures that are the movie monsters. So you get a gelatinous cube, a displacer beast, an owl bear, a mimic, and then there's one mystery figure, the, the five miniatures total. One, one we can't talk about quite yet, but that, that's a pre-painted set for $40. Monsters as they're depicted in the movie. So that, that's a really fun pre-painted set. Then we also have these incredible plush. So we started doing a plush last year. We've done Beholder, we've done uh, a small mimic, we, we've done, um, um, a, a, a red dragon. They're, they're super cute. They're awesome. Uh, Kid Robot is our sister company. They do a really great job. And but I think this is this is the best crop we've done. I mean, so this chunky red dragon, Thembertoad, is just you have to heft him. Oh, he is hefty. Yeah, he's hefty. He's chunky. Um, we also have this this huge mimic plush, and the eyes and teeth glow in the dark. This is really cool. And then. The, the gelatinous cube down there, you can see it, it, it's a window and there's an opening in the top. So it comes with bones and a sword and a shield. So an unlucky adventurer has been eaten. It's even, you can fit the smaller 
plush inside. Oh, nice. So it's re that, really super cute. That gelatinous cube's expression, it's on a mission. Like <laughs> it, it is, yeah. It's hungry. Yeah. It's hungry, yeah. I like the expression on this one. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's recently eaten. Yeah. Re recently eaten every day for the past month. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. So then we, we have some, some critical role, uh, some new critical role stuff down there too, um, which I'm happy to talk about. There's also some more D&D stuff around the corner if you want to go over there. Yeah, what do we, what do we okay. head around the corner? I do think I see something that I've been looking forward to in that display case we're coming up to. So here's our other D&D display. Um, a few things here you've, you've probably already seen. Um, but I'll, I'll point out a couple things in particular. So we talked about Dragonlance already. Here are a couple of Dragonlance warbands. So uh, Kryn is such an awesome setting and there are these epic large-scale encounters. So we wanted to make sure that the, the warring factions could be represented on the tabletop. So we have these awesome warbands. Um, I have two of the three that we're doing here, Dragon Army and the Draconian Warband. We also have the Kalaman military. So all of the major factions will be represented if you want to really flood your table with miniatures and set up those, again, large-scale battles. Um, this Draconian Warband in particular is amazing. I love that we were able to, uh, to, to put a larger figure in here. Yeah. We also have the Pseudo-Dragon, which is our next life-size creature. Which so you're is, probably familiar with... Which is the one I was saying I was spotting over here. <laughs> yes. So you're probably familiar with some of the life-size uh, foam and latex pieces that we've done. There's the dragon trophy plaques or uh, dritz, the, the life-size dritz. So this is in that line, but obviously it's much smaller. And I'm so happy we were able to get this down to $100 because this is, I, I love this piece. It should go on every, on every shelf. Um, but it's, you know, it's a life-size pseudo-dragon, which of course is a, a very small familiar. Um, and it's, it's just the right size to actually put right on top of your D&D books um, or on a shelf. I love that we detailed the bottom of this, so if it's on a clear shelf or um, somewhere where you know people might be seeing the bottom of it, it it's fully detailed, not just flat down there. This, this comes in March. Um, our next adult dragon is the Shadow Dragon, the first Shadow Dragon we've done, the adult blue Shadow Dragon. Uh, you can see the painted and unpainted, um, and it's just, it just has such a cool plastic effect uh, with, the, with the sort of partial translucence. Um, that comes in January also. And then I also want to point out the, so we have some really fun nostalgia stuff in here. Um, the, the classic collection is, you should probably recognize that cover art, yeah. which of course is the, is the first edition. Um, so we took all the first edition monster manual art and we're making mi new miniatures out of, out of those creatures starting uh, at the beginning of the alphabet. And it has this awesome packaging that looks like, you know, it's retro packaging, it has the window flap. And this is the D through F set, which is, so A through C is available now. D through F is coming, I think, in February. So it has a bunch of elementals, Displacer Beast, Etten, uh, and, and Doppelganger. Oh, and of course the Afridi with this uh, awesome fire, let's see the, the flames uh, wrapping him. Um, and so it's designed to sort of, if, if you keep the box, put it on your shelf, it looks like an encyclopedia set of all, all the classic monsters, which, you know, the new art is, is is gorgeous, of course, but there's something there's something incredible about the, just the zany first edition art. Uh, so it's really fun to have these miniatures. Well, you've got the the full size of Freddy statue yes. over there that looks like it's based on the original art, and yes. I have to say, seeing the original art and then that statue is impressive because it it doesn't look as goofy as I thought it would. 
Right, so it's, it's trying to strike the right balance of being true to the source, but also making something that people want to have on their shelf, right? Right. Um, so yeah, we have the, the Gith Yankee, um, and then the, the, the Afridi are the sort of, again, you know, original edition book covers, uh, the Fiend Folio and the, uh, the DMG, and uh, they're, they're beautiful 12-inch resin statue pieces. So, the, the, of course, there, there's more. We, we can keep talking and talking. We have the Gargantian miniatures. We have ship scale miniatures. We have uh, our D&D prismatic paints, which um, are uh, Vallejo acrylic paints, but we, we partnered with them to have a new paint line that includes uh, 20 new D&D-specific formulations. So, Tarasque Carapace, for example. Uh, Dewey Black Slime Wash. So, you get fun colors like that. Um, that obviously pair very well with our miniatures. We have hobby tools as well for, for painters and for builders. Um, sprue miniatures, we have more coming in 2023. Uh, there's uh, a lot we're working on. Yeah. yeah. I do have to say, if you keep trying to call the things like the Tarasque and the ancient red dragon miniatures, someone's going to sue you for misrepresentation because those well, things are you know, enormous. Th they are technically to scale, yeah. to game scale, so th they are miniatures. Um, but yeah, we, we get a lot of reports of, uh, of cats being frightened by, <laughs> by the gargantuans. No, all right. Well, I think uh, I think that was a, a good summary. So thank you for the time and showing us everything. Well, of course, thank you for coming by and uh, wishing you a great con. Sire, yeah. uh, I have news. Now, what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Ooh, I see dragons on the cover. What are you reading, Lennon? This? Oh, okay, so you know how wizards have been trying to spread D&D internationally and we have the player's handbook in like Italian, Spanish, German, and I, I think it's even in Japanese now. Yes? Well, this is the latest release in proper British English, the King's English. Wormspear, Veil of the Draconic Monarch? Yeah, yeah, basically it's Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen, but, you, you know, done correctly. Uh, they use meters for movement and distance, unless it's outside 500 meters, then it's in miles, obviously. Uh, weights are in pound and stone, liquids are done by the mill, unless it's beer or milk, which still comes in a pint. It's just sensible stuff, really. Yeah, huh? Um, if it's all the same to you, I think we might want to stick with the North American version for the review, though. You know, if that's okay with you. <sighs> okay, all right. Fine, fine, I get where most of our audience is, that's fine, but wait until you read the section in this on the absolute bellends. Uh, that's what they call Kenda in our version. They've got this bonus feat called Geezer Who's a Bit Mental, which makes people avoid them in pubs. It's great. The latest hardcover adventure from Wizards of the Coast is now available at all good friendly local gaming stores and digital marketplaces near you. Retailing for approximately $44.99 US, this latest entry and the last of 2022 lets you and your players, quote, march to war against the dragon armies in this adventure for the world's greatest role-playing game, end quote. A quick note before we proceed, for this review we're using the version as available on D&D Beyond as of the night we record this show. While this should be identical to any print copies, D&D Beyond will automatically update with errata that Wizards produces, so if you're listening to this in the future and something doesn't seem quite right, that's why. Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen is comprised of six main chapters, five appendices, and an intro. 
The book opens with a section entitled War Comes to Kryn and covers how to use the book, a brief history of Kryn, a quick primer on the dragon armies, the War of the Lance, and life on Ancelon, specifics on the Kalamon region, and a quick dive into the deities worshipped on Kryn. Chapter 1 covers character creation, including a new racial option that Lennon absolutely loves, a new subclass for the sorcerer, two new backgrounds for the Knights of Salamnia and Mages of High Sorcery, as well as a suite of feats suitable for a campaign against the Dragon Queen. Chapter 2 is entitled Prelude to War and serves as a tutorial and introduction to the world of Kryn, as well as the setting of Dragonlance as a whole. Chapter 3, When Home Burns, is where the main campaign starts. The characters attend the funeral of a friend before getting swept up in the events that kickstart a war that threatens to engulf the entirety of Kryn. This plays out over the remaining four chapters, with the characters' hopeful triumph over the forces of darkness and evil. Appendix A features new gear and magic items unique to the Dragonlance setting, although they certainly can be liberated for use in other campaigns. Appendix B is a series of random encounters that are referenced throughout the book, alongside the stat blocks for said friends and foes. Speaking of friends, Appendix C is a list of sidekicks that your players may encounter at different points on their adventure who may or may not join the party. Appendix D is where you'll find lots of inspiration for your own Dragonlance campaigns through the story concept art. And finally, Appendix E contains all the regional maps that you could desire, as long as what you actually desire are two of them specifically for the Northern Wastes and the continent of Ancelon. And that, as they say, is all she wrote. Now, before we go any further, we will, of course, try not to give away the big spoilers, like, you know, Vader being Luke's father, but we are going to be discussing elements of the story. So if you want to go in completely blind, you might want to skip forward until you hear us talking about a guy named Thessalar. Still with us? Fantastic. All right, so uh, the last hardcover release of 2022, and one that I've been looking forward to since we've been seeing the teasers on it. I think there's a lot to like in this book. There's a lot not to like about the Kenda. And overall, though, <laughs> I thought this was a really fantastic module. I think it's a very solid war story. I don't think it does too much in terms of being hugely different and overall i would say it was rather linear but it is a very solid very playable offering in my experience what do you guys think so you say it's very solid i say i feel like this is the most well thought out adventure that wizards has published for fifth edition i can see where you're going with that i i would say and maybe it's a, a slightly different field i feel the curse of strad was slightly better executed but I think that could just be because it's, it's written as a slightly more like a... It, it really grabs you, Curse of Strahd, and makes you... Like, there's mm. a lot of flavorful bits in there. This this is almost as good as I just think Curse of Strahd edges it out slightly. Well, I think it might just be... It might be sort of a matter of taste because Curse of Strahd is a little bit more open world. Like, there is a quest to complete, but there isn't a forced linear progression. You mm. can go to different parts at different times. This adventure is a lot more linear and a lot more railroady by necessity. So I think that's one of the major differences. So when I said I thought it was the most well-thought-out adventure, I didn't necessarily mean the story and the storyline as, uh, as it goes, but... Mm. The book itself, how it tells how to play through said adventure oh, yes. is what I mean. Mm -hmm. yep. So this book has what I have not yet seen in any other 
source book or adventure book put out by wizards. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember seeing it in any of the other ones. But this one has a pronunciation guide. We did get that with one of the others. Um, okay. I, I don't remember that. I but think it was Spelljammer, wasn't it? If it wasn't Spelljammer, it was Wild Beyond the Witchlight. It was one of those non-planar campaigns. Um, but either way, yes, I am very glad to see the pronunciation guide in this. Uh, that, that was another thing that I was going to bring up later, so I'm glad you, glad you brought that up now, because um, there are so many key terms that once you know how to pronounce them, they, none of them are difficult. It's just that they don't necessarily sound immediately as you would read them. Which has just been sort of like the the case with a lot of uh, D&D stuff in the past, like uh, Eberron is, is hugely famous for nobody knows how to truly pronounce the name of the region that exploded. Um, some people say Kyrie, some people say Siri, some people say Kaya, some, it, there's a whole mix of them. So to have the pronunciation guide for that is is fantastic. I'm really glad it's here. So... In our patron lounge, Depeche just mentioned that Radiant Citadel also had a pronunciation Citadel, guide. That was it. However, however, I kind of posit that that's not. It, it is an official wizard's offering, but it wasn't written mostly by wizards. It's the compilation that they, yeah. they do, where they source it out a bit like uh, Candlekeep Adventures and Yawning Portal, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also feel like the diction in this book is a lot more understandable. There's there's a lot less mechanic speak. Mm. So to give you guys an example of what I find as easier diction than the typical mechanical speak that they have, when it starts talking about running the adventure, it says, and I quote, When a creature's name appears in bold type, that's a visual cue pointing you to its stat block as a way of saying, hey DM, you better get this creature's stat block ready. You're going to need it. Unquote. That's pretty cool. I do like that. So yeah, just uh, taking a a quick look over this and we can dive into as much depth or or not as you want. Um, Character creation. Uh, I will, I'm obviously going to talk about the Kender at some point. So if anybody wants to say anything else before I start on that, I completely get it. (laughs) No, go ahead. We're, okay. We were all prepared. I've got, yep. you know, <clears throat> my popcorn and the sleeping bag. And- sure. Um, I didn't prepare much. Uh, Mikey insert sound effect of scroll being unfurled, bouncing on the floor three times. Uh, no, seriously, I, I actually didn't uh, didn't prepare that much at all. Um, I, I, okay. I hate Kenda. We know this. I, I hate their previous incarnations with a burning passion. I hate the uh, shenanigans that have happened at tables when I have had Kenda in games that I've been playing in to the point where I just basically outlawed them as DMs. I actually went on the record on Heroes Rise saying that I didn't think the UA versions were Kenda in their truest form. I feel that actually what they've done here is a very good compromise between allowing a different race that has traits that allow you to really get into the... um, Some people would say fearless, some people would say reckless stupidity of the Kender. It uh, gives you advantage on saving throws against being frightened, so yeah, why not charge down that hulking great shadow behemoth that has an aura of fear? You can do it. And I like that they have the ability in here called Taunt, which allows them to... Uh, quote, unleash a string of provoking words. I, I personally feel it should just be done 
on site, but you know, you, you can play it how you wish. And then um, if you uh, you call you cause a uh, wisdom saving throw on the target, and if you succeed, then they have disadvantage on attack rolls against other targets than you. So yeah, it, it really does get to the whole, we fear nothing, we will say stupid things, but there are no, there is nothing in this about either stealing from the party, finding random magical objects here, there and everywhere. Like at one point, they just had like pockets that kind of went into somebody else's bag of holding in the multiverse somewhere. I don't know. Um, it does have a line in there that says, Some may become professional thieves, which I thought was a nice little, little kind of cherry on there. But actually, I've got to hand it to Wizards. I think they did a good job with the Kenda and. I still don't like them because they're basically halflings with stupidity, but I get it, and I get why they're in here. And so if you have to represent them, this is this this is fine. It's fine. Yeah, I still think... I mean, I don't know if this is exactly to your point, but I still feel like they eliminated much of what the Kender were for various reasons, and you can speculate endlessly about why they made the changes they made mm -hmm. um but yeah they're they're halflings with a little bit of a twist and it's not even that much of a twist at this yeah. point and also technically um, they're gnomes with a little bit of a twist in this version but they're halflings aren't they you know yeah it's yeah it's just it's sort of there mm -hmm. um and to me like i sort of just skipped over the stat block because there's there's nothing that really sets it apart to me. Right, exactly. They they are just fine. That's what I was saying. It's yeah. fine. Um so I didn't mention this earlier, but apparently I'm the only one that's a little bit disappointed with this. The release? Okay. Yeah. Um there were and I think I just I hyped it up in my own mind too much. I'd set my expectations too high because uh, there were several different aspects of the book that I was really interested in seeing what they did with them. And when I went in and looked at them, I was like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> and then I just move on. Sure. Um, specifically, uh, there were the... Um, the tests of high sorcery. Yes. And the integration of the board game. Yes. Yeah, I, I will go with that as well. We'll, we'll come to the to the board game thing uh, shortly. Let's have a quick chat, though, about the test of high sorcery, because I'm curious as to whether you actually went along the same lines with it as I did, and me and you definitely haven't conversed during this because I was on a very long flight prior to the recording, so... This is this is interesting to me. So yes, what what were your thoughts on the the test of high sorcery to become the uh, full initiate? Well, and I'll just warn: this is like a complete, blatant spoiler. So oh, yes, yeah, skip yeah. ahead like a couple of minutes if you don't want any information. But I remember in the video, I forget which specific Wizards of the Coast staff member was talking about it, but. They were talking about how the test for high sorcery is fraught with peril and there's danger involved with it and people who fail the test can die and they tried to incorporate that into the story and to me, 
and this may be overstating it, all of that was complete BS. They did not integrate any danger or any risk at all. They didn't even integrate the test. Yep. They glossed over it, neutered it, and basically gave it lip service as a couple of side points in the adventure. And that's it. It doesn't put anyone at risk. It doesn't provide any detriments. It doesn't provide any benefits. It's literally just a roleplay thing. And if you get into it, it's like if you use it as a spring off point for a roleplay item, it gives you enough to work with. But all of that content basically has to be invented by the DM and the players. Yeah. And mechanically speaking, it has absolutely no impact at all. Yeah, I was I was thinking the same way. It's to me, I can remember getting really excited about the mythic creatures in Mythic Odysseys of Theros, and there was one that was really good, and three that were like, okay, you kind of phoned this in, and I felt the same way with that test. They in the background section where they talk about it, they do like they give all those things like it's really lethal. Uh, you could lose characters; they may be forever changed. But then when it actually comes to it in the book, it's like, but it's it's not really. And 90% of it is work with your player to find out X and then do Y or, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I did feel a little bit let down about that as well. Yeah, it was another example of this is really awesome and amazing as long as your DM does the work to make it that way. <laughs> But we're not going to give you any of that. There's just, you know, we mentioned that it's supposed to be really cool. Get on that. There's a, there's a fantastic image out there, which is how to draw an owl. And I feel that basically what wizards did was draw the circle, now draw the other circle, and then said to the DM, now draw the rest of the owl. And it's like, yeah. okay, um, yeah, you gave us something, but... <laughs> and that was just... Uh, it, it was really, really... It was a real sour note, and it was really early in the in the module, so mm. it just sort of sabotaged it for me, I guess you could say. Did you Apart want to from that, oh. though, the the structure of the story, I will agree, is is good. Um, like most of the encounters and the way that the story progresses, it does feel very much like the adventure is taking place during a war. Oh yeah, this is a very well... In terms of world building, um, you really do get the sense of it being in a war. Especially, um, I realise that this is skipping ahead a bit. When there is uh, a sort of one of the larger battles, because obviously it's like army versus army, right? To simulate the large-scale combat whilst playing a small individual, you control your roles, and then once per turn you roll a... You make a roll as the DM, and you roll a d6... And it has various things that happen during the battle, which the best way I can describe it is if you were if you were watching a TV show, so say, um, you know, like Lord of the Rings, where they have those big, massive battles, and the camera is focused on the players, but there are things that are happening just off screen that will then impact what happens to the characters because they're right in the middle of this big battle. So um, one, for example, is that uh, there is a, a fiery flask that gets thrown uh, across the battle and the person it was aimed at like ducks out of the way and it's heading towards your players and like they need to potentially make a deck save or however they want to deal with it um, but I think it's little things like, like that that really add to the sense of you being in this huge war setting 
yeah, that was that was one of the things I really liked was the I mean, I don't want to call them random encounter tables because that has a very specific meaning to most players. But yeah, the battlefield events where if there's an encounter going on in the middle of a larger battle, random stuff can happen that really, to me, increases the the immersion and the feeling mm. of this is not just the players doing their thing. The players are part of a larger event. So going back to character creation for this, when it first is introducing Kryn, it starts talking about how basically all the clerics, when the gods left, pretty much just lost all their power. And when I first saw that, my first thought was, well, then are clerics like something that you can't play in in this setting? And then I thought, well, that's weird because Goldmoon obviously had mm-hmm. a really big connection to Mishikal in the books. Yeah, a little but, bit. But well, it it was it was pretty it was there. Like mm-hmm. she had her cleric powers. And even before she actually became officially a cleric. So I got a little confused, and then one of the preludes was suddenly some people are hearing the voices of the gods again. Yes. So that that cleared that up for me, and I, I was worried because, you know, Gath wouldn't be able to play in this adventure otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, but I mean, not really. Not really, yeah. I was going to say, I, I know, I know we, we typecast him as the forever cleric because he is. Mm-hmm. It's true. Uh, speaking of classes, though, and things that are that are fine, um, the Lunar Sorcerer, um, basically almost the same as it was in the last UA. Um, very well yeah. balanced. Um, genuinely nothing that I could point out on that as being, oh, well, that's a bit ridiculous, or that makes it, other than the things that we discussed last time about, you know, the, the much bigger uh, spell list. But yeah, um hasn't hasn't altered too much in that sense but it's still a very solid entry i feel i mean i didn't notice any major differences between what we discussed before and the version that ends up here yeah yeah i i still think that it immediately gets slotted in as possibly the best mechanical power sorcerer subclass Mm -hmm. um they didn't really do a whole lot to dampen that aspect of it, but yeah, it's it's a good entry. But we've we we've sort of already covered all the ups and yeah. downs of it. All right, so uh, jumping on then to uh, well, we're starting to get into the adventure proper now. So chapter two is the sort of standalone tutorial part that you don't have to run if you don't want to. You can just go straight in at chapter three, but. I feel that chapter two not really if, does... Not if you want your clerks to have powers. Uh, right, exactly. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it does a good job of introducing the world of uh, Kryn and the setting of Dragonlance. Um, this was actually, despite everything, I think this was one of my favourite chapters in the book for the method of organisation, the way that it introduces familiar concepts that might be slightly different, and then finally just... Not, not in a, a bad way at all, I'm just talking from a pure DM perspective, allows for a lot of exposition about the situation and 
all the things in Kryn that are, are different. And there's a couple of different uh, preludes that you can run through. And I I just thought that this was a, a really a really good again, again I'm, I'm going to keep saying the words this is a really good solid adventure because it, it really is um but this yeah this chapter was definitely one of my favorites for setting everything up getting players introduced being able to give them all the information that they need and then chapter three where it quote really starts they can hit the ground running and go from there yeah i felt like the the preludes were just they're they're really good for rounding out things that you wouldn't necessarily think about before starting the adventure itself yeah although the i mean ironically the sort of neutral introduction the scales of war prelude Mm -hmm. comes close to following the standard policy of characters will die at level one Oh, no, it's fine because they'll have a Lunar Sorcerer, so they won't. Exactly. Yeah, well, <laughs> well no, because if they have a Lunar Sorcerer, they have to do the other one. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, there's... I mean, the the initial encounter... Ugh. Yeah, the, the one with the... I mean, if the, if the DM does... If the DM is not feeling kind, yep. you can definitely come out of that with some dead characters. Especially because I I read through it initially and I noticed oh there's another there's another NPC traveling with the characters maybe that's supposed to balance the encounter uh, the NPCs uh, a dies. okay yeah yeah exactly yeah um and that was what I was going to say is depending on how you look at it it is your entire party versus five creatures that have a challenge rating of like a half which I know I know Ostron I know but um. Five characters versus your party size. So unless you are matching it up to five, you may, as the DM, end up uh, um, having to get creative with this. Because I I know for a fact if I was trying to run this with a group of three, that unless they were on their game, this could seriously change the course of the War of the Lance, but not for the good. (laughs) I mean, especially because one of them is actually CR3. And yeah. oh yes, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, their, was, yeah. Their basic attack, if you use the printed damage, mm-hmm. does twelve. Yep. At level one, half of the cal- half of the classes are dead. Like there are about half of the classes based on hit points. They literally can't have an HP total above that. Yeah. So I assume you're talking about the K-Pack. The K-Pack. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in the adventure. And again, spoilers. It says he orders the two half CR guys to go fight mm-hmm. fight the people while he retreats. So Yeah, I'm just thinking of the you know, those players yeah, who they are won't like, let anyone run the away. Monks, attack the captain. Precisely. Yes, but it says but it says the retreating draconians won't fight the characters under any circumstances. Mm, the I, I get it, but I can also see bad roles happening if you're trying to even just scare them off a little bit and the like. Also, the NPC goes and hides, so he's not even with the characters when they're there in the first place, so... So yeah, the the preludes, uh, you run through that, and then finally, uh, you go to the funeral, which we spoke about the funeral event uh, in a previous episode with uh, Ispin, when we were all telling our tales of, of how we met Ispin. Um, that's what kicks off the adventure proper, and then it runs from there. I don't necessarily want to get uh, myself like 
too spoilery in this other than to say once again really solid adventure um and i love the way that it ends um feel free to jump in with any chapters or whatever but i am going to say the chapter five the northern wastes which is supposed to be like um an exploration mission chapter type thing i felt that that was the weakest out of the remaining the three to seven arc i felt chapter five was kind of the weakest one out of that um there's some cool ideas in isolation but i think trying to put it all together is like a hey go out into the wasteland and and do your thing um and i get why they're in the wasteland um I just felt it could have been executed a little better than it was. It, to me, that was the point at which I thought, ah, uh, the pacing's kind of dropped. Um, it's it, it felt a bit clunky to me. Oh, but it seems like it's a requirement in the official modules that are adventures like this, where at some point you have to give the characters an open area to explore. And for most of the... I mean, most of the anecdotal feedback I've heard, those are the weaker parts of it. Possibly because, like, exploration is still sort of weak in D&D 5th edition. And I also feel like there's way too much of an opportunity for characters to just sabotage the whole thing by accident. Because they can just sort of motor through and miss a, a lot of the content. And uh, yeah, like I said, I, I personally don't want to get too spoilery, but I'm happy to discuss anything else about the story, which I thought was really good. So what parts of this book uh, in, in these chapters three through seven uh, did you guys like or dislike or things that you would tweak, etc.? Well, as I already said, I like the integration of the random events when there's a larger battle. Yes. I, I wish there had been more of that. Okay. Because a lot of the, well, I don't know about a lot, but the, um, there are a number of encounters with it, but there are more, I feel, without it. Like, a lot more of the encounters seem to be more traditional dungeon crawls or, right. um, like facility infiltrations or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I wish, I wish more of them had been the large scale confrontations just to really hammer home that this is a a war-based adventure. Yeah. Um, not just a typical adventure with a couple of war battles in the middle of it. I wish there had been more of those included. So I think one, one of the things that I really liked in the way that they made the adventure, and I'm not going to say a name because it is an extremely big spoiler, mm -hmm. but... I like how they used a specific NPC throughout several of the chapters. Yes. I think I, see where, I, think I know where you're going with this. That's all I'm going to say mm -hmm. about that. Because anything else I say would be extremely big spoiler. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed seeing that happen. Yeah. Um, I actually, when I first read this book, um, I misunderstood something in the contents like just a um i i thought that uh chapters two and three were the prelude and so ah. when i was then scanning through and i got to like chapter four and i was reading i was like no but hang on wait a second then i thought hang on i'm just gonna skip to chapter seven jump to chapter seven and i was like wait a minute like what and yeah that that like you said the way that they're using that npc um 
got me a little bit confused to begin with, but when I realized what was happening and the penny dropped, it was that was a good moment. So I do want to talk about some of the city maps. Sure. Um, so if you look at chapter three. Yes. So on the map of Vogler, the distant scale in the bottom corner shows how long 30 feet is. And this is an extremely small town with extremely small buildings if that line is 30 feet. Yes. The keep, according to that line, the the keep, uh, the fortress at the, uh, b- at the opening of said village is only 40 feet wide. Yes, which for, you know, a very roomy lookout tower, maybe... But a keep? Absolutely (laughs) not. Um, It also means that uh, the the way that I was looking at it was the the brass crab, uh, in comparison, was absolutely ginormous compared to every other building in the vicinity. Except the mayor's house. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So it's like, I I get what they were trying to do there, but yes, that, that clearly wasn't actually designed to be used. That was just a ready reckoner for when your players are like, oh, I want to cast this spell, and he's like seven streets over. How far is that? And he's like, uh, I don't know, that looks like, what, 60, 120? At least you can use that as a yeah. very rough... Um, trying to actually play it to scale. Yeah, you are not doing that on this city map at all. Another thing that really is neither here nor there, I just thought it was interesting, the entire book uses the phrase dragon army as two words. And I just find that interesting because in the books... Dragon Army was one word. You always catch those minor, or what I would consider to be minor typos, so I feel you should probably take this one up with Wizards of the Coast. I didn't spot that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. It's just something I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that I uh, thought was kind of interesting as well, I- I've just been s- uh, scrolling through the, the chapter three again. Um, this was the one that had the uh, the the, fest- the fishing festival, and if you've ever wanted a fishing mechanic in your game, it basically is just a d20 roll with a DC that you've got to make. Um, but if you want something to get you started, that is quite a uh, decent little mechanic in there. Um, even if it does mean that sometimes you might then turn up to D and D, and instead of the shopping session, you're going to have the fishing session. Well, I mean, every modern video game has to have a fishing. <laughs> right, which is why so, I was saying if you want to put one into your D&D campaigns here's one that you can just wholesale yeah, this is, borrow. This is wizards caving to societal pressure. <laughs> and then doing what wizards do best and go back to attempting to murder the players at a low level immediately afterwards. So, mm. um, so yeah, speaking of uh, murdering the players at an extremely low level, that's one way of doing it. The other way is, as Ostrom was saying earlier, sometimes throughout this book they put in these little sidebars that say... If you want to play the tie-in board game, this is where you do it. And if you think I'm kind of underselling that mechanic for purposes of letting Ostron explain the rest of it, no, that is the entire thing. It literally just says, now play Scenario 11, or whatever particular one it happens to be. And I, I was, I was, once again, I was expecting more. The bar was very low, and still I don't think they quite made it. No. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going into this, I was expecting something like, here's the default scenario, if you don't want to bother with the board game, this is Mm -hmm. what happens. And then in the sidebar, I was expecting something like, 
if you play the scenario and you win, this is this is the list of changes that get made to the encounter, or these are the things right. from the encounter that get. And if you lost, these are the things that get added to the encounter, or instead of starting at this point, you know, start at this point with this many less people. And no, there was that is not the level of effort that was put forth here. Um, I remember in in one of them that I read, and I I think I know which it is, but I won't say, it was just, if they won the scenario, they get advantage on charisma checks for the next hour. <laughs> and I'm reading that, I'm like, seriously? Yep. So yep, yep, yep. basically, it's like, and I don't want to, you know, kill anyone's fun, but if your players and or you are really interested in playing the board game and they enjoy the board game, that's great. If people do not enjoy the board game, the adjustments that they make to the encounters will not be enough of a motivation for them to play it. Right. And like they will not be convinced to play the board game based on how it affects this adventure. Yes, and it is not it is not even deeply integrated to the point of getting them to care about it. Um, having said that, I did go to my friendly local gaming store today, and I did uh, spend a few minutes checking out uh, the, the the actual board game. They had a couple of guys who were playing it, so I was sort of watching over the shoulders and uh, randomly asking questions. It does actually look quite fun. If you are into board games, and particularly if you like the more large-scale warfare, I don't want to say Warhammer-type battles, because that's a whole other system, but if you were looking for, like, an accessible Warhammer, then Warriors of Kryn. Um, it, it's you can see what they're trying to do, and it does it does do army scale combat really quite well, I think. But it is not, as we just said, like a, an integrated part of this. Still, still fun, and I would still recommend people check it out. But it's certainly not a. I, what I guess what I was hoping for was if you didn't play the board game, then it would feel like a. Uh, a lesser version of the potential that could be. Whereas instead, I think it's almost the other way of if you want a distraction, why not do this for the battle instead? Or, yeah, yeah, something like that. I was, yeah, I was of the same mindset. And it almost surprises me that they didn't do it like that because deeper integration with the module would encourage more people to buy it, I think. But then you could end up with the whole Beadle and Grimm's type thing of why am I spending $400 to play a single module? So I can understand it. And I can see that this is potentially even the first glimpse at cross-promotion. Like how way back in the old days we got the Plane Shift articles, which were Unearthed Arcanas set in the Magic the Gathering universe before they went full wholesale and gave us proper Magic the Gathering source books. I wouldn't be surprised to see a repeat of this kind of integration in the future. Yeah, I just... I mean, I I don't think they should have gone to the level of the board game is required. But like I said, if they'd made the influence that the board game scenarios have on the encounters more significant, mm -hmm. I think it would have been an argument for getting more people to buy it like again using a video game comparison if a video game comes out and then they introduce 
downloadable content. And the downloadable content, if it's an RPG game, for example, if it introduces a few extra quest lines and another playable character you can recruit, a lot more people are going to buy that than if the DLC just has here are some extra mounts that your character can use to get around and three more mini games that you can play in various places around the the world. Do you see what I'm saying there? Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I, and I'm with you. And I I feel like with a little more effort and it really is a little I mean, okay, this is this is probably me being um I don't even know what to call it, but it's a bad thing. But <laughs> um like I can think of a number of ways to just make the board game more impactful to the scenarios off the top of my head. But I'm a kind of person who likes to tweak game mechanics, and that is vastly understating what I usually do, <laughs> according to my players. Um, but again, regular DMs, or most DMs, I don't think would want to go through the effort to do more to integrate the impact of the board game scenarios with the adventure and it just seems again like a massively missed opportunity and it was disappointing to me based on how much they were hyping up the integration yeah. of the two just on the on the thing of you and mechanics you are the dm equivalent of the guy that like finds a recipe and is like hey I made this sponge cake it turned out amazing I swapped the flour for burgers the eggs for buns the cherries for lettuce and it was the best cake I'd ever eaten so that's a burger you're, you're not eating a cake anymore what are you talking about yeah it's uh, I've, I've seen I've seen and played in some of the things you've invented so I can I can attest to that I'm just sitting here in awe of that analogy <laughs> but Which but one? I'm not wrong the one that Lennon just made. Oh. <laughs> but again, I, I still maintain I am not wrong. I'm a lot of things. Um, some of them we can say on the podcast, some of them not so much. But uh, wrong in that I most definitely am not. Okay, so now that we've talked about the story as a whole, let's go on to the appendices. So Appendix A is the gear and magic items. And I don't know about you guys, but I had so much fun reading these. <laughs> Just Especially the adventuring gear. The adventuring gear. Okay, that's that's what I was wondering if that's what you meant. Um, the the Fargab is one that I like, and I think I might actually have to steal this for Eberron. Tweak it ever so slightly, but I like what it is. Fargab. It sounds like a complete mash on the keyboard. It's literally a walkie-talkie. It's a radio. It's a long-distance yep. radio. There is a Nary Crash, which is basically a parachute backpack. Mm -hmm. And there is the Gnome Flinger. Which is literally a catapult. It literally does what it says on made, the tin. Yes, it is literally a catapult <laughs> designed to hurl creatures instead of projectiles. Yep. Uh, in, in association with said creature wearing the Nary Crash. If they're lucky. If they remember that mm -hmm. part. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and uh, in, in amongst this, we've also got uh, the in the magic item section, we actually have the Dragonlance. Um, is anybody surprised to see that one? Nope. I am surprised that it's a little it's a little less powerful than I was expecting. Same. Yeah. But I mean the thrust the plus three bonus to attack is huge. Mm-hmm. But 
only doing 3d6 force damage to a dragon is yeah. like, really? This is supposed to be like, I mean, in the story, dragon lances take down dragons in one hit. Now, granted, yeah. they can't, they can't literally do that mechanically, but I was expecting at least like 4d10 or something. Yeah, I, I was, I was going to go with 66, but yes, exactly the same. I, I was going to say, like, that's that's a lot less extra damage than, say, an arrow of dragon slaying. Yeah. Yeah. Or the classic that I was going to compare it to, a wizard casting fireball. <laughs> um, now, too. I suppose, arguably, you give this to a fighter at oh, yes. level One. 11. Okay, fine. Do they have three attacks by then? Uh, Yes. Yeah, if you give this to a fighter at level 11 and they hit with every attack, yeah, so you're you're talking 3d10 plus 96 damage. That does have I mean the the dragon is going to notice that, but again you have to give it to the right character. Like a dragon lance wielded by a barbarian is not going to be it won't be as effective. crazy. Right. So yeah, I was just thinking it would be better. Also, I hate the fact that they snuck that in the next thing into the book. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to point I, that out. <laughs> yeah, I, d I didn't know if we should continue, but as you brought it up, Ostrom, what is yes, it? Yes, we can continue. The Forest Shroud is a very nice oh. garment. <laughs> let's, let's go back one more. One more. No, well, we already talked about the Dragonlance. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I, I see your, your Spelljammer blindness spell is, has gone to Spelljammer adjacent blindness as well. <laughs> this isn't a Spelljammer. It is a functional, ornate chair that propels and moves a flying citadel, as opposed to... A, the, the function of an ornate chair being to propel and maneuver a flying spaceship. It is totally different. Completely different. Totally different. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then the forest shroud. That's kind of cool. It's um, it's a ghillie suit for elves. That's what it is, basically. Yeah. I say for elves. I guess it could work on anyone. I just picture an elf wearing it because uh, elves live in woods, and that's where my mind goes apparently. I am a little sad that you only get to use the special on it once per day, but yeah, it is a rare though, so it's not yeah, it's not super like not supposed to be super powerful, but yeah, yeah. In Appendix B, if we can hop down there, yeah, sure. I do like the Draconians. Uh, so Appendix B is the. Um, uh, the monster manual chapter, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the draconians there. You can do a lot with them. And it's very easy, I feel, to create a cohesive army that is varied enough to be interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to scale the encounters using all the different types of draconians and still make it challenging for whatever party while keeping the fact that they all look the same like they're all part of the same group and the fact that all of them you know you kill them and then they still cause problems afterward mm -hmm. are, yeah because uh some of them explode nice yeah yeah that's that's fun some of them explode some of them release gas that does various different problematic things yep yeah the whole section on a uh, death throws um 
is something that, again, DMs can take inspiration from if you're looking to make other creatures in your games uh, a little bit more unique. And you can... It, it tells you how to modify them to represent soldiers from the other dragon armies. Mm-hmm. So Ryu, do you want to talk about the uh, the death dragon? I do want to say that I am slightly disappointed that the death dragon is the only real new dragon. There are dragon elves in here, but they're yeah, not but they're really not real dragons. dragons, are they? Yeah. 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 But I do think the death dragons are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. They're they're like a step step up from lich dragons or draco liches. Excuse me. Yes. These are the uh they are they- Quote, Maybe several steps up. <laughs> yeah, right. They are, uh, quote, undead skeletal remains of metallic or chromatic dragons that have had their uh, inner being has been, like, infused with the fires of the cataclysmic magic. Um, the art for them looks pretty cool as well, because initially when I saw the art in Standalone, I thought there was the potential that they could have been a construct. It's got that real, like well in this case metallic look to it that gave me that sense but yeah looking at it looking at it overall it is it is a, a great addition to the dragon lineup without a doubt um and and its breath weapon yes. is really cool yes. i did not expect it to be like this mm-hmm. so in doing a number of necrotic damage also if any creature is killed by it or if it hits any corpse the corpse becomes a zombie mm-hmm. under the dragon's control. That's that is that's neat. Yes, I wouldn't have thought of that. Also, they're purple, so that just makes me like them even more. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the concept art of uh, Lord Soth riding the Death Dragon. There's that's that's oh purple up the wazoo. We we saw the model of. Very good. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Some of you managed to get a trip to Philadelphia this year, whilst others of us We didn't. took pictures. We did. They they were pretty great, actually. <laughs> Lord Soth is... His stat block is impressive enough to stand as a um, an ultimate boss of an adventure. Like, if, if you try to go up against him directly without a lot of preparation, it's not... Going it won't to end well. No. 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 Um, and I know that challenge rating is useless, but this was one of the instances where I thought challenge rating is kind of... His his CR, I think, undersells how powerful he can be. Yeah, well, again, yeah. challenge rating is useless because it's like, oh, this guy is at this level, so mm-hmm. this party can probably... Nope, 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 we're done here. Not in this case, no. If, if you... It's a CR 19, which means that, in theory, it should be based around a party of five that are level 19. And I think that he would still be able to edge them out if it wasn't just for the fact of the action economy, you know, the, the five to one ratio. Um, he, he's a it's, powerful little dude. Yeah, especially because you're allowed to play him intelligently. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. he's not hes not going to stop and fight the barbarian because the barbarian is in his face. He's going to go around him and take out your spellcasters because they are squishy. And then things just go downhill from there. So, I know we slightly touched on it, but we only touched on it. Appendix C is sidekicks and, like... They have a list of ready-made sidekicks for you. I thought that was pretty cool. You don't have to come up with your own. But they do use the sidekick rules from Tasha's. Yeah, they'll be perfect for when you uh, when you go up against that very first encounter and uh, 
You need <laughs> six other people in the party. Also, the going back to the miniatures that we saw at mm. PAX, the I'm honestly not sure if this is pronounced Boiler Drac or Boiler Drake. It doesn't have an E on the end, so I'm assuming Boiler Drac. Okay. The Boiler Drac was the mechanical dragon that Ostron and I were shown a miniature of, and we liked a lot. Liked a lot that you ended up uh, ordering one? Not yet. Not they're yet. not available yet. Yeah, they're not They're not available yet. Ah, I see. I see. So yeah, uh, Dragonlance, it's here. It's a, as I have said a million times, very solid adventure. Personally, I think it's worth picking up because it is just a great war story. It is easily accessible, even if your players have never touched the world of Kryn, even if you as a DM have never touched the world of Kryn. Seriously, go check it out. Go to your friendly local game store, pick up a copy of it, and get playing because it's really cool. Now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to learn all about Thessal things and how to make them. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Hey there, Ostron. I brought you a drink. I don't drink alcohol. You really think I would give you something that would put you to sleep? Isn't it easier for you to sneak around and steal things when I'm asleep? Not my major concern. Also, not my major problem right now. Oh, did Lennon lock himself in the vault again? I told you, even if he gets through the psionic lock somehow, he doesn't have enough experience with spells to get the plane-shifted one. Ugh, you were going to put me to sleep. No, Katie left me a... I think it's a spell book, but I can't read the notes. Hey guys, oh, is that a book? Does it have maps in it? I mean, it actually does have a few. Ooh, ooh, gimme, 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 gimme. Oh, okay, let's... Ah. What? This, that, ooh, no, that, that's not a map. That, that's a nightmare. Um, that is not a flaming horse. No, 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 no. I mean, like, the, the sort of thing where you wake up at night screaming and trying to cuddle your pillow. I mean, what is that thing? It's got so many heads. Oh, is that... Yeah, hang on. Right. I don't know how the killer DM got her hands on one of Thessalar's notebooks, and thinking about it, I really don't want to. What is a Thessalar? And why is it in a notebook full of mutated grossness? No, Thessalar is a person, and the mutated grossness is sort of his deal. Here, read this quick, and I'll compile the rest of the notes. Okie dokie. All right. Uh... Thessalar is a minor figure in the grand scheme of things, but his popularity got a slight boost a few years ago, albeit indirectly. A huge amorphous monster appeared toward the end of Stranger Things Season 1 and in the trailers for Stranger Things Season 2. Given how much Stranger Things has leaned on D&D for story elements and naming conventions, fans of the series and D&D immediately began to guess what the monster was or may be called. With no clues from the cast or the writers, the internet as a whole eventually settled with the Thessal Hydra. And then a lot of people who were only familiar with 4th and 5th editions went, uh, uh, what? And by the way, the creature from Stranger Things was eventually dubbed a Mind Flayer, but that's kind of not what we're talking about right now. The Thessal Hydra is a monster out of 1st edition. It originally appeared in the second monster manual, like many monsters of that time, it did not have an extensive lore history to go along with its existence. It was just another horrifying creature you could run into in swamps, jungles, and caverns and turn your caving expedition into a nightmare. 
It was reprinted for official resources in both 2nd edition and 3.5. It took 5th edition longer to get around to it, and it's still sort of hidden away in a secondary adventure. The Thessal Hydra is a lizard-like creature with a reptilian body that is 36 feet long, 20 feet of which is tail. At the end of the tail are sharp pincers. It has four legs, and the top of the body is a mess. Where most creatures would have a head, it just has a humongous round mouth. Around the edges of the mouth are eight snake heads. All of the heads spit acid, and the creature is large enough to swallow most other regularly sized creatures if they get anywhere near the main mouth, which is also dripping acid. When the creature eventually got some lore, it was mostly to just describe it as a horrifying but dumb beast that terrorized and or ate anything that came near it. However, the lore eventually added to the fact that Thessalhydras are unusually good breeders. This led to the creation of an entire line of what are called Thessal monsters. You have the Thessalmira, which is what happens when a Chimera meets a Thessalhydra in breeding season. It looks just like a Thessalhydra, except instead of the large mouth in the middle of all the snakes, the lion head is there. And then, behind the snake's heads on its back is the red dragon head that breathes fire. Next, you have the Thessal Gorgon. Remember in D&D, a Gorgon is a large bull-like creature covered in metallic scales? All the nice ladies with the snake hair and stony gazes are called Medusas. So, cross the bullfighter's worst day with a Thessal Hydra, and you get a Thessal Gorgon, featuring metallic scales and a bull's head that breathes petrifying gas. You would think you could guess the pattern, but then the Thessaltris has to go and subvert expectations. This beastie, again, favours its Thessalhydra parent, but it keeps the gigantic round mouth. Instead, the snakes coming out from and around the mouth don't have the snake heads, they have little cockatrice heads, each of which can petrify whomever they bite. It was also rumoured that the Thessalhydra bred with other creatures and got them pregnant, but none of those creatures actually lived once born. In the lore, it seemed, all of these horrific creations were assumed to be the result of Thessalhydras being unusually prolific and the various nature gods of the plains all simultaneously going, yeah, I'm not dealing with that, it happened, just ignore it until something kills it. It wasn't until much later, specifically Dungeon Magazine 134 for edition 3.5, that another source for these things was suggested. Enter Thessalar. Thessalar hails from Greyhawk, where he spent much of his time obsessed with the idea of understanding life and creation. But unlike rangers or druids who try to live in harmony and learn from nature, Thessalar wanted to replicate the ability to create new pieces of it. He became incredibly adept at crafting and mutating living creatures with magic and alchemy. The Thessalhydras are supposedly his creation, and are one of the few that survived. All of the various dead half-breed creatures people found or reported were not a result of biology giving up after birth, but instead of failed experiments by Thessalar. Thessalar is mostly a self-absorbed narcissist, and as such ignores any hypocrisy or contradictions in his own work. For example, when he hadn't finished his work on trying to create life as the end of his own approached, he went through the effort to become a lich. He then proceeded to use the power of several wish spells to begin formulating a proto-life solution, rather than simply using the spell to create whatever he had in mind in the first place. Reinforcing the narcissism thing, the adventure from the Dungeon Magazine says he became obsessed with a female celestial hiding out near the area where he'd made his lair. He was unable to fathom why she wasn't immediately smitten with him and rebuffed all his advances. 
To solve that problem, he tried to craft a domination potion to bend her to his will. Why are all the men we talk about so cringy? You, you do remember that we mostly cover bad guys. Fair, but even Elminster and Dritz are borderline. In addition to the Thessalhydras and the various related subspecies, he also claims credit for creation of almost all monstrosities in the world. Owlbears, chulls, rust monsters, and mimics are supposedly his doing. Chulls and mimics have mostly been proven to not be because of him specifically, but a lot of people concede that owlbears and rust monsters could very well be things he cooked up. Also, nobody disputes his claim about the various Thessal monsters because he's shown an ability to immediately and effortlessly command all of them whenever they're near him. 5th edition has only used Thessalar once, and like many things, his basis and existence has changed a little bit. He appeared in the Extra Life resource, The Infernal Machine Rebuild, where he is a self-obsessed artificer, albeit one that is searching for ways to prolong his life and maybe in the early stages of searching for lichdom. In addition to the Thessal Hydra, he also created a Thessal Kraken. In general, however, both Thessalar and his creatures are somewhat nerfed from previous. As a mortal spellcaster, Thessalar is a lot less of a threat. He still weighs in at challenge rating 14, but lacking undeath he is a lot easier to vanquish, and he also doesn't have innate control over all of the Thessal monsters that he did in other editions. Also, the 5th edition Thessal Hydras are only challenge rating 4, which is a huge threat reduction from previous editions, where parties were expected to have levels in the high teens before fighting Thessal Hydras was something they would even think about. If you want to pick up the Infernal Machine rebuild, that's probably the easiest way to make use of Thessalar and his lore in 5th edition. He could also be lifted out of that resource and used as a Frankenstein-like figure in any number of places or situations, either as an incidental threat to an area, a lackey of a bigger bad who's making use of him to manufacture monstrosities, or just as a threat in his own right that needs to be overcome. If you want to go with the Lich incarnation of him, even in his previous versions he didn't differ much from a traditional Lich except in his ability to control the Thessal monsters. That is easy enough to just implement as a DM without modifying or making up any rules. The Thessal monsters just become companions for the Lich. Scaling the Thessal Hydras back up to their former glory, or using any of the other Thessal monsters that didn't get 5e stats, probably requires some more work. But you can also comb through the official or third-party resources for non-sapient creatures with the monstrosity type. Reflavoring them as Thessal monsters only requires a little bit of work with naming. Or you can just keep them as is and claim Thessalar is making them. Things like Froghemoths and Dracohydras are certainly on brand for him. So if you need a monstrosity generator, or just another lich with a well-known name that isn't a Sararak, Thessalar is certainly an option. So, back to my original question, why does the killer DM have his notebook? Knowing her is probably a love token. <sighs> Sorry, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, see, I just thought she was looking for a source of minions, and now you had to put that idea in my head. Oh, I mean, come on, we all know who the killer DM's heart really belongs to. We do? Yeah, but... As the notes just said, Thessalar doesn't seem to care if the woman he's after shows no interest whatsoever. Hang on, who's the killer DM interested in? Well, either way, I'm sure it will work out fine. Just like I'm sure Ray Ray won't hit me for ignoring the scrangle. I'm even less sure of that, but let's go find out. Why is no one telling me things? What news from the north? Join us of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse... When was the last time you suffered or inflicted a TPK in a game? Was it fair, or were people crying BS? 
We got the opinions of the hosts and the patrons, but what's your take on our Dissonant Whispers questions? How do you see radiant damage manifesting? How do you knock snakes prone? How does mimic poop behave? And finally, what's your ruling on wishing for the wish spell to be eliminated? Would you allow it? What are the ramifications? And normally we post the community questions on our socials and our Discord to remind you and give you a chance to put your feedback in, but unfortunately we forgot to do that this week, so I know that we say it's a two-way conversation, but this week, alas, it will just have to be a one-way conversation, uh, which is fantastic for me because there's actually some things I've been wanting to say for a little while now. And then in the in the show doc, I just put write something here. So clearly, I'm putting as much thought into this <laughs> as I do my regular D and D campaigns. So, uh, <laughs> firstly, I know we say it at the end of every show, but there are so many people behind the scenes here at Heroes Rise who help make the show come together, and we really couldn't possibly do it without any of them. So, from the marketplace to the memes, the audio alchemy down to the art, and so much in between. The amount of talent and passion that we have on this crew is honestly incredible, and without all of you, the show would not be anywhere near the unmatched quality that it is. I mean, like, genuinely, seriously, Mikey took a week off this year, and I managed to delete the entire Sweepers folder, so just imagine that rolled out across the entire board. Uh, There genuinely is no finer crew in the entire multiverse, so thank you again for the incredible job you guys do week in, week out. Secondly, I personally here want to thank my co-hosts Ostron and Ryu, without whom this show would just be honestly just a mad Englishman's ramblings, and even with you guys here it kind of gets like that sometimes, but the two of you just kind of make this show something super special, and whether you're squealing over dragons, uh, getting mathsy, or the way that you just roll your eyes and sigh when I say five minutes before opening, hey guys, I've changed this entire section, um, you two are just like... You, you are two-thirds of one half of the greatest D&D show ever, and I, I just... I don't know, you're the nasty ones. You can figure out what that ratio is. <laughs> no, I and, can't, because it makes no sense at all. Well, the, the crew are one half, we're the other half, and you are two-thirds of one half. Just start, okay. start writing it down now. I want an answer by the end. And, um, yeah, so they, they always say, though, that you should definitely leave the best for last. And so I really want to say from everybody here at Heroes Rise, a huge thank you to all of you out there, our listeners. So whether you're out there in the multiverse or you're on the Heroes Rise Discord or you're one of our patrons, we genuinely cannot express how much your support and listenership means to us. Some of you may be aware that our show is essentially like a, a spin-off of a spin-off. Uh, Heroes Rise is a D&D take on Guard Frequency, which in turn, that podcast is a space game-themed spin-off of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And um, over there, one of the hosts, Elio, uh, he used to have this saying, which in turn Tony on Guard Frequency used, and honestly, it's still one thing that rings true even over here on Heroes Rise, which is, without you, our listeners none of this would be possible. You're the reason that this show exists, and you're the reason that it keeps on ticking. 2022 has certainly been an interesting year for D&D, and in turn, this podcast, seeing us drop down to like a bi-weekly release and everything, and yet through the entire cycle, the ups and downs, you guys were there throughout it all, and not only have you remained active listeners, but we've actually seen our listener counts increase, so you're even out there spreading the word, and genuinely, without each and every one of you, this show would be about as good as lightning against a construct so thank you for everything and we look forward to bringing you more dungeons and dragons goodness in 2023 and beyond and one third what you said give you the answer at the end it's one third (laughs) did i say i was at the end yet did i say i was at 
you are. Okay, that was are. the first full stop I've heard in that entire rant, so I took Rem- what I could get. That's fair. Remember what I was saying about the mad Englishman's ramblings? Just Mm -hmm. on point. Um, Anyway, as I was saying, the listeners, though, they still have their part to play. So if if it's not too much trouble for you guys over the Christmas period, um, Ostron has something that he'd like to ask you now. Which is this week's community questions. First of all, what was your favorite official release from Wizards of the Coast this past year? Which one completely missed for you? What do you expect to see from Wizards of the Coast in 2023? Which of the announced releases, such as Keys from the Golden Vault, Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants, or Planescape, are you most excited about? Finally, how did we do in 2022? Did you have a favorite segment? Favorite short rest bit? Blooper? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 231st entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 232nd entry on January 11th, 2023. But before we go, we want to know... For you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, usually, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feeds at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support this show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from just $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally you might get dragged into a recording or two for some distant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage, Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal, Bloodlake, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Minvar, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwyn, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chadorik, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cordron, Daft Kronk, The Record Spinning Economy, The Shadow Known Only as Azeral, and that one guy. Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Lowe of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening and throughout 2022. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers.
no, 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 no. I mean, like the bit where you wake up at night screaming and trying to cuddle your pillow. Uh, what is what? Uh, uh, <laughs> when the creature eventually got some lore, it was mostly to just describe it as a. Bleh. In the lore, it seemed that all of these horrific creatures were somehow assumed to actually read what Ostron wrote <laughs> rather than just make up your own words. Yeah, well, it's been this long and you haven't started that yet, so... Exactly. <laughs> For example, when he hadn't finished his work on trying to create life as the end of his own approached, he went and went there. Did he? <laughs> that's that's a mean, good ending for him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of true, though. <laughs> also, the 5th edition Thessalhydras are only CR4, which is a huge threat reduction from previous editions, where parties were expected to have levels in the high teens before being able to take on a Thessalhydra, uh, if that was even something that they would even piss. Beep, beep. <laughs> um, that, that sounds painful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, the 5th edition Thessalhydras are only challenge rating 4, which is a huge reduction from... <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> try, try. I know it's hard, but try just reading what I wrote without also the fifth edition Thessal Hydra. No, here we go. Okay, with less of Ostron as a <laughs> less dick. <laughs> he could also be lifted out of that resource and used as a Frankenstein-like figure in any number of places or situations, either as an incidental threat to an area, a lackey of a bigger bad who's using. Yeah. See, Ostron, if you just wrote what you read oh, dang it, I can't even insult you properly. Yeah. I've had a weird 24 hours, okay. Chapter 2 is entitled Prelude to War and serves as a tutorial for introduction to the world world to the world of that. Chapter 3, When Home Burns, is where the main campaign starts, and the characters attending the funeral of a friend before getting swept up in the events that kickstart a war that threatens into the gulf. Nope. <laughs> threatens um, into the gulf. Into the gulf. You, no offense uh, intended, but that whole sentence was kind of a mess as yeah, you were reading it. It, it, it was. I realized it, uh, which is part of the reason why my tongue decided to keep flubbing. I, I would actually... Do you mind if I do some editing? Minor. I mean, I do, Not but you're going to do it anyway, so you might as well crack on. <laughs> okay, yeah, fine. If you want to, if you want like proper sentence structure and like readable prose, that's what you do. But uh, <laughs> I still maintain my. Ver By the way, the British English version of um, uh, Worm Spear, the uh, Veil of the Draconic Monarch, uh, it's it's just one sentence, start to finish, all seven chapters. It's great. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. If you want to go in completely blind, then you might want to skip forward until you talk us, talk us hearing about. Nope. <laughs> Which of the announced releases, such as Keys from the Golden Vault, Bigby Prevents Glory of the Giants, yeah, or Planes... Prevents. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a much better book. I, I want that one. Yeah. <laughs> we want to take a moment to wait for the loud vehicle to go down my street. <laughs> And our yes. social media made Ray Ray. Oh, okay. yes. <laughs> we want to wait for our social media made Ray Ray. <laughs> well, you could just phone your dad. <laughs> and for anybody who gets that as a blooper in the main show, they won't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, actually, that sounds terrible if you don't want to. <laughs> uh, 
Ray Ray won't hit me for ignoring the scrying pool, but suggesting she's having an affair with Ryu's that that might get me a slap. Also, letters. Oh god, I need to stop laughing now. <laughs> and I need for him to stop laughing too. Uh, so we're going to be here for a few minutes? Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> I was going to say, he doesn't get paid to laugh. I mean, he doesn't get paid. Oh, okay.